0: Good afternoon everyone. Uh, I think we better get started, we are running a bit behind, Um, otherwise we're running to our our tea time. Uh, I must say right up front, I feel like saying welcome to our afternoon plenary session. I'm not too sure how many people are in the other sessions, but uh, it's great to have you here. I didn't know that being a TBC meant that you were going to be so popular. Um, But TBC just means that they couldn't find anybody else, Uh, so I'm cheering the session. I'm Trevor Pascoe. Uh, Welcome to uh, the behavioral economics uh, session, and you might be a little bit confused. The second talk uh, you might think is different to behavioral economics, but I went through the presentation. It's about 70% behavioral economics, so you'll probably be pleasantly surprised that regulators do think about it, and uh, we look forward to what uh, Peter Carswell has to say. Uh, Peter Temple is going to start up front, uh, and he has asked that he is going to do a polling, Um, so please could you check in uh, with your mobile apps uh, so that you can do the polling. He is going to ask a question or two uh, during his session. Also another housekeeping item, if you haven't, if you have ordered a printed uh, paper copy, and not collected them yet, please collect this from the registration desk uh, during the tea break. Uh, also, to say David O'Brien, who led the uh, previous session, uh, did call for a sponsorship for uh, Movember. I'm not going to do so, even though I am doing the same, uh, but please support David uh, so you can put your money uh, where his mouth is. Right. <laughs> All right. I, I think uh, Peter Temple doesn't really need much of an introduction. Um, but I, I want to say that I don't know where he finds time to do everything that he does do, uh, other than being president, looking after Genri in South Africa, Africa, and in the UK. He finds time to look after a Christian bookshop, do lecturing, part-time preaching, and look after a family, and a number of other things. But uh, I always enjoy his presentations, and I look forward to what uh, Peter has to present. We are going to have both Peters present and take questions after that. Over to Peter
1: i just reiterate what Trevor said If you haven't yet checked in on your mobile app They can't send you the question unless you've checked in So um, please make sure that you've checked in for the session And then you'll get the question a little bit later on um, I'm going to be speaking on behavioral economics and insurance um, And possibly also just a little bit of a challenge towards the end uh, As well in terms of the way we're thinking about things in 1957, a guy called James Vickery um, introduced into cinemas, uh, into the movie, films, uh, two short, uh, very one-in-three-thousandth clips, um, and that had an impact on the people that were watching. Uh, these were the two clips. That was the first one, and that was the second one. We think behavioral economics is quite new, but in fact, this is probably the precursor of behavioral economics that, um, that he introduced and tested. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But I originally just wanted to give a little bit of background to behavioral economics. Clearly all of us here have had some training in economics, otherwise you wouldn't have become an actuary. Um, And economics talks about us actually making rational decisions. So it says actually when you're presented with various choices, you'll think about them rationally, and you will make the rational decision. And we as actuaries, I think, are, are quite comfortable with that. But behavioral economics, on the other hand, um, says actually you don't make rational decisions. And in fact, most of the time, uh, you're making decisions, you're making them without even thinking about uh, the, the decisions that you're making. So recently, there was some research done in the UK by a company, um, a, a research paper, it's called Mindspace. Um, if you're interested in, in the space of economics, behavioral economics is a great paper to get and read. And one of the things they said is that 80% of the decisions that you make in a particular day, in fact, have nothing whatsoever to do with the thought process of how you got there. So just to illustrate that point, uh, this morning when you got up, um, you would have uh, put on your socks if you're a man, um, stockings if you're a woman, and you probably didn't even think about which foot you put on first, whether it was your left foot sock or your right foot sock. You just did it. Uh, but you actually had to make some decision, because you couldn't simultaneously put both socks on si- at the same time. So you actually made a decision without even thinking about it. But you did make a decision. And, and that's really what we do all the time. So 80% of the things that we, we look at, um, we don't make decisions for. And in fact, one of the researchers talks about it is that we make decisions based on what we feel is right, um, rather than necessarily the facts behind the situation. Uh, and he calls it the click were effect. You just make a decision, your brain just clicks over, and you, you carry on. Um, and that's, that's very contrary to what people in economics think. Because actually, what it says to us, and what they come to from a conclusion perspective, is they've, they've said, actually, when you look at these things, um, we are actually irrational in our decision making. And actually, the, the, the conclusion of the, the research from Mindspace was that we're predictably irrational um, in our thinking. So they can actually predict when you're going to make an irrational decision. Um, And again, for actuaries, I don't suspect we we like that particular thought at all. Um, Mindspace and the UK government actually did a research into what biases or heuristics are the most predominant and common for people when they make decisions. Um And these are the ones that they came up with. Now I'm not going to spend time on it, I haven't got the time to go into all of the details of this. Um, but if you are interested in the field, um, it's, I would suggest you you research some of these things and have a look further. These are the ones that they said made the most difference in the research that they found. Just get back to James Vickery um, again. Um, He claimed that the results of him putting those two clips, uh, eat popcorn and drink Coke, uh, into the movie was that at the interval, uh, people went out and they bought 18.1% more Coke and they bought 57% more popcorn, um, which was staggering, actually, because it said suddenly, actually, you can influence people's decisions and behaviors without them even knowing it. And the result of it was there was a significant outcry in America at the time. Um, and including the CIA got involved to look at this, because obviously if you can start adjusting people's thinking patterns, um, that could be quite an important aspect to know what's going on. And so the CIA got involved with research. The funny thing was actually um, James Vickery um, invented his stats, um, and um, he actually manipulated his research, um, so it was proven not to be correct. But it did kick off this field of thinking in terms of, uh, can we make people think and behave differently, um, regardless of the actual uh, rational decision-making process? Uh, And that's really where we're sitting today, is can we influence people? Can we think about how people can make, not necessarily rational decisions, Um, And as I said, that doesn't sit comfortably with actuaries as a general rule, and you're probably sitting here thinking there's no ways I make rational decisions. I'm an actuary, I make rational decisions all the time. So uh, I wanna give you a couple of illustrations of how um, behavioral economics doesn't actually go always um, in that direction, will suggest that you don't make rational decisions all the time. Um, At our client conference in South Africa, Last year, I was talking about behavioral economics and insurance, and so we thought we'd do an experiment, and actually, um, in the break between our our sessions, we had a popcorn machine and we had popcorn. Now, um, what happens with behavioral economics is if you generally offer three options uh, to people, what they will do is they will take the middle option, and they won't take the small or the large. The extra large, they'll take the middle. That's... 80% of people do that, and so in fact, if you go um, to fast food chains, you will see that they do one of two things. They either offer three options, and they're expecting people to take the middle one, or they only offer two, because then they know that you won't have the choice of the middle one. Um, So that people do that, and that, that is the effect of behavioral economics. As it turned out, the experiment that we did with our clients, we didn't factor into the fact that our clients were gluttons. Um, And um, they all took the large one, filled the bottom with sweets, and then topped it up with popcorn. Um, So it didn't uh, didn't work entirely for an illustration. And if you were at my session last year, and I spoke about um, how Barack Obama used data analytics to get elected um, as a prime minister or a president in America, um, one of the things that I mentioned actually in that talk was is how they managed to change people's minds to vote for him when they wouldn't naturally have been a voter um, for the Democratic Party. And they basically used behavioral economics. You can say that's behavioral economics to, to manipulate a nation. And that's what they did. Some of, <coughs> some of you may have seen uh, the research that was done by Facebook um, quite recently. Um, Facebook came out about eighteen months ago where what they did was for a period of time a- in a certain grouping of people, and um, they hid the negative posts that anybody posted on your Facebook stream. So if you've got friends that were posting a negative comment, they hid those and they only kept positive comments, and then they measured to see the people whether they would post more positive comments. And they did similarly the reverse. so they actually um, hid all the positive comments and just kept the negative comments on your Facebook page. Uh, and then they measured to see whether the person actually posted more negative comments. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And um, the people who saw more positive things posted more positive comments. The people who saw more negative things posted more negative comments, and were effectively influenced in their posting. And the study is significantly, uh, statistically significant as well. Um, if you have a look at it, you can see how that comes through. And so actually, uh, behavioral economics definitely seems to be in play in business. It seems to be in play in many aspects of our lives, um, and I want to try to persuade you that um, you have an opportunity. So this is the, question, the first question. You sitting there thinking I'm rational, um, I want you to, to pick one of these two options. The first option is you have a 95% chance um, to win 10,000 and a 5% chance to win zero or you have a 100% chance to win 9,000. So you should get that on your app I'm picking either A or B. Um, have a go with that. We'll give you a few minutes as quickly to go for it. Which one would you go for? It should, if you've checked in, it should immediately just come to you. Has everybody got it? People got it? Nobody got it? Sorry? Uh, you're not being checked out. Okay, so we'll do this the old-fashioned way. How many people would uh, select A? Put your hand up if you would select A, the 95% with the 5%, okay, a smattering of people who think they're clever. Um, and you would like to take 100% of 9,000, Okay, the vast majority of the audience. Um, but hopefully you all know that the statistical significance of that is actually the much better, the expected value. Um, and if you don't, Garrett's sitting here in the front row. He can come and give you the, the statistics behind it. The, the expected value really is uh, 9,500 for the top one, which is actually a better option from an economics perspective. And yet most of us would take the second one. So the second example I'll go for um, is that you have a 95% chance to lose 10,000 Rand or a 5% chance to lose zero, uh, or a 100% chance to lose 9,000? So which one? Who would take the 95% chance to lose 10,000 and a 5% chance uh, to lose zero? Raise your hand if you're going to take that one. Okay, the bulk of the people. And uh, who's going to go for D? The small smattering of people. Um, So in fact, actually, what you are is a bunch of gamblers, because uh, um, you're prepared to take the very small 5% chance. And that's exactly what behavioral economics is. In fact, we do not act rationally. Even when you're thinking about it, you are not taking the rational option uh, as an actuary. And hopefully that point um, picks it up. So when it comes to insurance and finance, um, biases are obviously always in play uh, in the way that we think and the way that we operate. Um, And these are the four probably key biases that influence us in terms of insurance and finance. Uh, And again, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but we'll know that one of the key ones is the the issue of default. And so if you work in the retirement space, and and I've got a retirement fund, we've got freedom of uh, investment choice in our retirement fund. It's always been in my head to actually move and do my own investments according to the things that I wanted to do, but I've just never gotten around to it. And so my pension fund investments are are, are saved into the default, Um, and people generally take the default option. Uh, it's one of the very powerful things that we use um, in our industry, and in fact, in many industries in the world. And it's one of the biases that we see. So if you think about various different biases, and I, I make no apology for the fact that I've stolen some of these points and, and slides from uh, a presentation I saw in Australia um, done by two discovery actuaries. And um, so there are two slides in, in here that you'll see um, have some of, of their information, and this is one of them. Um, but these are the, the, the various different uh, biases that you will actually see in operation. So if you have a look at them, um, in particular, um, they, I mean there are a whole lot, and i want to go through them all. And again, I suggest you, if you're interested in the topic, that you spend more time looking at these things. Um, but, but two of the, the key ones, and the one I, I sort of illustrated, ah, get it back again. The one I illustrated a moment ago is the one of loss aversion, is that, um, in fact, we um, have a much greater aversion to losing something. Now, in the insurance arena, and in our arena of healthcare, and whatever you might do, um, it actually means that we should think carefully about the way we offer and incentivize people. Because it's much more powerful to actually say to somebody, um, I'll give you something now, and if you do A, B, and C, you can keep it. But if you don't do those things, I'm going to take it away, then if you say, if you do A, B, and C, I will give you something. Um, So that's one of the the, the key things that we should be using in terms of our thought process. Because in fact, people hate to lose something much more than they hate to gain something. the other thing that people do is um, you tend to discount what's called hyperbolic discounting. You tend to discount things um, which are maybe of massive benefit but some long time into the, into the future. So offering a premium discount to somebody um, in five years or 10 years time, even though it might be a substantial premium discount if they do X, Y, and Z, uh, actually won't be attractive to somebody today and they won't value it as much as really they should be valuing it, and they probably won't change their behavior, as um, uh, we heard this morning as well. You, just People just won't do it. Um, but if, on the other hand, you uh, realize that you can nudge people to do things differently, uh, and you use the behavioral technology, the t- technique of nudging, um, you can maybe get them to make small steps towards actually getting what you want them to do in the long term. So if you're a member of Discovery Medical Aid, um, You'll know that they've just recently launched um, on their Vitality program that if you meet the weekly target um, of whatever points uh, for your health benefit, in fact, that you get a free coffee at the end of that week or a free drink from Kauai. Um, They're using the nudge theory to to actually get you to do something which hopefully is your long-term benefit, actually exercise more, do more things in the health, which will have a much greater long-term effect uh, on our finances one day. So just to bring it a little bit more closer, this is particularly related to insurance. And these are insurance questions, and this is actually comes from our company and actual genuine answers from people on insurance application forms. And so if you ask them a very simple question, um, you don't necessarily get an obvious answer, um, as you can see from the first one. Uh, and actually, if you follow that up with, the, on, on average, how frequently do you consume alcohol, you don't necessarily get a very clear answer even on that. So it doesn't help you, really, to determine the risk um, that you're doing it. If you look at it um, just a little bit broader, um, if you ask people, do you drink alcohol, Um, even that has a behavioral bias to it because you would think it's a straightforward yes, no answer. But actually, it matters as to who might see the application and what cultural norm I come from and whether it's acceptable for me to say whether or not I drink alcohol and who's going to see that. Um, So that is actually, even in itself, not a great question to ask um, in terms of applications. And as you move down, you'll see that the the third question there in particular, if people ask, you ask a question about alcohol usage and you actually give three blocks, um, generally people choose the middle one. Um, and interestingly enough, we've, um, I've seen research where they've changed, they've had those middle blocks, and instead of having one to four units, they've had one to 10 units, and then 11 uh, units and above. And people still choose the middle one. So they basically said they drink, whatever, three times more, um, and they still choose the middle one. Um, it's, it doesn't make any difference to their choice. Um, so you effectively are influencing people by what you give them. A- and even if you go for a very open-ended question, which is the last one. Um, you, can, you can still get some degree of framing because it depends whether or not you say um, that whether you're drinking per day or per week, um, and that will, you'll get different answers uh, to that question as well. So these things are all directly impacted in terms of behavioral economics and the thought process behind them. This is the other slide of Stone from Discovery. Um, You question whether these things have any value, Um, you'll see quite clearly that um, the the people who are unengaged in the vitality product versus those people who are moderately and highly engaged, there's a significant change to morbidity and uh, mortality. And so you can use behavioral economics to try and get more people to be more engaged and therefore actually improve their long-term health and long-term morbidity and and mortality. If you think about our world in terms of insurance and our underwriting models, one of the things that we have from an underwriting model perspective is we have a very static underwriting model. We ask people questions today, and we make a decision based on those answers to those questions, and we give them a policy. But in fact, if you think about where we move to in the world, we really should have a much more dynamic underwriting model and allowing for these things and behavioral economics. Because if you move to a more dynamic um, basis, you can ask some questions, then you can nudge people to do things differently, um, and you can then reward them for doing those things differently. And that should feed into the product, it should feed into the benefits that we give people, Uh, it should feed into what we pay out from that product. So it can significantly change things if we move to a much more dynamic approach, allowing for technology that we've got today and taking into account uh, behavioral economics. And really, from a behavioral economics perspective, what you're looking for is what they define as the tipping point. It's the point where, in fact, the cost involved in getting that information and encourage people to do things differently um, is less than the benefits that you're getting um, from that particular change. So I'm assuming that Discovery has done the calculation and worked out that the cost of giving a person a coffee um, is actually much less than the long-term benefit of the improved mortality and morbidity that they're getting through their policyholders. Just to give you a specific example, this comes from my work in the UK. Um, the UK used to use um, just general um, practitioner reports for making medical decisions, and the left-hand side is the, the sort of breakdown of standard versus uh, loaded versus declined cases that we would have seen from an underwriting perspective. Um, and then they suddenly realized that actually through the Information Act, you can ask for what they call subject access requests, which is effectively all medical information about a particular person in the UK, because it's all stored centrally um, through the national health system. So you can ask for all that information. And, and once we got all that information, you would think you may be able to make a much more accurate decision on people's um, mortality. And, and what happened was is that we saw our underwriters move to the right-hand side. And you can see what happens is the number of standard cases goes down significantly. So this is pretty much the same proportion of people that we were getting previously. We were giving less people standard rates. We're declining more people, and we're loading more people. So in fact, we've become a lot more conservative based on more information that we've got. So that results in two things. One, it means that we can adjust the information that we ask for, uh, and we did that. But two, it also means that you can actually change your base tables that you are actually using for pricing. Um, and actually, this is an example of one of the clients and the work that we did with them um, and how we changed and adjusted the base table so we actually give discounts um, on the business that we've got. But you need to factor that into account in terms of the way people think and respond. They don't naturally deal with uh, all information perfectly. So then the, um, the question comes in, well, does this really matter? Well, we, we, we're not looking at just the, uh, the, the, the average. And the average is important for us. But in an insurance industry, what we're looking at often is to try and make sure that we've got the extremes correct. Um, and if we have the extremes correct, that's much more important. So the right-hand extreme is the cost of insurance. And the cost of insurance is not that crucial um, because, actually, if you're overpaying for insurance, that's not a major problem. Uh, it's a very small cost. But if you're under-saving uh, as an industry, we know that that is a significant problem. And so that makes a significant difference uh, to us as well. So that, that's absolutely key. Um, And so behavioral economics should really matter and does matter to us, and there's no question about it. And there's no question in my mind that we should be worried about it and thinking about it from an industry perspective. Um, And I want to just finish off by making sort of a personal challenge and plea in terms of the thought processes that uh, we have as an industry. Um, One of the pieces of research that's done by Harvard and was in the Harvard Business Review was asking people about insurance and whether you would be happy to buy insurance from non-insurers. And 2 thirds of people um, answering that said, yes, we'd be quite happy to buy insurance from non-insurers. One in four people said they would be quite happy to buy from an online retailer, somebody like um, uh, Amazon, for instance. So there's a significant challenge coming to our industry um, in the future. Uh, The Economist ran a series of articles on insurance, and they basically said, actually, insurance is really only about a technology platform. You don't really need the insurance companies that we've got today. Um, And they're really seeing us as as somebody with a decent technology platform and a decent technology provider um, would actually do extremely well as an insurance company. Uh, We've done research as a company on millennials, and um, they will be the biggest single-buying population um, in the future. And um, one of the things that we found, this is the first, the left-hand side is the research from the UK. And that research basically shows that actually millennials are much more interested in insuring their mobile phone than they would be in insuring their income and and worrying about disability. So you've got a significant problem in terms of the thought processes of people buying insurance going into the future. uh, And we need to influence that. The right hand side is the research from the U.S. about the, the other pieces of things that people are much more interested in than insurance. And I suspect that a lot of times when we think about behavioral economics and what we're trying to do, what we are trying to do is get people to buy our products, and encouraging people to buy our products through nudging them in various ways. But I wonder whether that's the right thing. Um, If you look at research, and this is research done by KPMG that's just recently come out, um, you'll notice that these are the things that people are worried about over the next two years, um, and they're worried about their operational systems, and they are not really worried about their customers. the, this is the, again, some asking a very similar question, saying, well, actually, what are the things that you should be worrying about? Well, you know, again, the, the thing that I think we should be worrying about, only 4% of people came in. And the things that you think are going to influence your business over the next two years, 60% of people said regulation is going to be, be the biggest issue I'm going to have to worry about. Only 8% of people said the lack of trust from consumers. I suspect that that's a bit of a problem for our industry, because if we were to ask that question to consumers, I suspect lack of trust will be one of the biggest things that they will say about um, the financial services industry. And so I wonder whether we are using behavioral economics from a product perspective um, to really get people to buy what we want to sell to them and not necessarily what they really need and what they want. Uh, Being client-centric, is actually saying, I'm at the center of your world, um, not that you're at the center of my world. Uh, and I think that's a change that we need to be looking at uh, as an industry. Um, really, my, my last comment um, is, is really a comment from, um, about the challenges that we face as an industry. And I want to read a quote from um, a, a, a guy called Tom Goodwin. who says the following, Uber, the, large, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, creates no content. Alibaba, the most valuable retailer, has no inventory. Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. Something interesting is happening. What's that happening in our space and the insurance space, and what do we need to be thinking about as an industry? Thank you.
0: Thanks Peter, Uh, enough food for thought there. Uh, But linking into the discussion around regulations and regulators uh, Peter Carswell is a senior consultant working in the life insurance consulting practice of Milliman. He has worked at mature insurers, startups and consultancies in South Africa, India and the United Kingdom. Peter worked in London when the UK implemented the Twin Peaks regulatory Regime and is here today to talk about how the South African conduct regulation could evolve if our conduct authority follows in the footsteps of the UK counterparts. Thanks,
2: Peter. The Financial Services Board has always had a strong focus on prudential regulation, and we're expecting things to stay reasonably similar, it'll be quite familiar, but we've got this new conduct authority that's going to be coming on. How will they operate? What will they focus on? What does this mean for my firm? For the next 20 minutes, I'd like to offer you my opinion of what we could be getting ourselves into. Um, this opinion is based on looking at what's happened with the UK conduct regulator. Um, important that some of these principles will apply to South Africa. Some may not, but I'd expect similar treatment based on what the regulators have said. The opinion is definitely my own and not necessarily that of my firm. So, why does this matter? In order to control behavior, we have two types of tools available to us. Incentives and penalties, rewards and punishments, carrots and sticks. If you're a regulator, two of the sticks that you've got are regulatory fines and compensation of customers. Of course, there is always the reputational damage that follows the immediate financial impact. Why does it matter? Well, In the aftermath of any regulatory intervention, the board and executive are always asking certain questions. Who is to blame? What could we have done to prevent this? Were there any things we could have, uh, ways, any ways we could have seen this coming? I submit to you today that we don't know with certainty what is going to come. We don't know where the regulator will strike. But the items we discussed today should be considered foreseeable. You may need to extract these from, or extrapolate these from the current product that I'm talking about into your product set and into your environment. But they are something which we can foresee. Thirdly, we've got a regulator who's coming up who's going to be terribly focused. They're going to be focused on one thing and one thing only. They're going to be looking at it across the sectors with a single set of staff, looking at banking and insurance, taking the lessons that they learn in one place and applying them in others. And lastly, and this is where the behavioral economics links in, I promise it's coming, that the fundamentals upon which we are expecting them to base their approach will be different. This is not going to be a simple extension of the TCF regime or a new RDR-type measure that we're expecting to see come through. We're expecting to see a regulator who has a better understanding of how consumers behave and will expect the firms to have the same understanding. We are already seeing this with uh, the change in mindset from the recent National Treasury uh, consultation on retirement reform where concepts of simplified choice and defaults featured quite prominently. So, what has been going on in the UK? Well, quite a bit. Um, There are four specific publications that I want to bring to your attention today. The first is uh, Occasional Paper 1, where the conduct authority outlined their approach and the use of behavioural economics. The second is the 20th thematic review of 2014, where they looked at the annuity sales practice in the UK. Third one was the second occasional paper that they published where they looked at the effect of communication with customers and how this affected response rates. And lastly, policy statement and some consultations currently underway following a review of the selling practices of general insurance add-on products. So, before we can talk about occasional paper one, we need to talk a little bit about nudges. Now, you may have noticed that Peter threw in the word nudge quite often. Fortunately, he didn't explain it too well, so I'm going to get an opportunity to go into quite some detail. Thank you for that. In 2008, the University of Chicago economists Richard Thaler and Harvard Law School professor Cass Sunstein published the book Nudge. The book is about human behavior and draws on the research in the fields of psychology and behavioral economics. Thaler and Sunstein advocate something called soft paternalism, and the active engineering of choice architecture. The book accepts the premise of the two systems model of thinking proposed mostly by Nobel Prize winning economist um, Daniel Kahneman and, his, uh, and the late Amos Tversky. And the important thing is that it gives us a good way of understanding how human beings react and helps us answer the question, why do we make bad decisions? Nudge was fated as a success in the popular press and was chosen as one of the Economist's Book of the Year in 2008 as it brought home the message that behavioural economics affects everything that we do, from what we eat in restaurants and movie theatres to how our investments and pensions are chosen. And somebody noticed. In 2010, the coalition government in the UK established the Behavioural Insights Team, which operated out of number 10 Downing Street. The recruits were people who understood the principle of behavioral science, and they are informally called the nudge unit. The team helps redesign public services, drawing on behavioral science literature, but they subject everything they do to rigorously controlled tests to establish what does and doesn't work before they allow government to implement things at scale. Like most good scientists, they are equally proud of their successes and their failures. Failures are important messages too. They help us clear out some of the theories that certain high-ranking officials may have, theories that are wrong. The behavioral insights team are in part the mythbusters of the modern bureaucracy. The principle of soft paternalism is summed up adequately in a single statement: it's about retaining people's ability to make a free choice, but helping them not make a terrible one. What this means is that we shouldn't put up unnecessary obstacles that should hinder that would would hinder people taking certain options, but we must at the same time recognize that some choices are really hard, and so we need to help people. We need to help make things easier for people. How we present the options can and does influence the outcomes. Deciding on the presentation of options, this is what is known as choice architecture. And the Nudge Unit, they've had quite some successes. Most notably, they managed to increase tax collection rates by changing the text on the tax notification form that went out to the general public. See, as human beings, we like to conform. We like to know that what we're doing is normal. The Nudge Unit suggested that HMRC add one line to their notification letters. And it read, the great majority of people in your local area pay their tax on time. Most people with a debt like yours have paid it by now. (laughs) On time payments went up by 15%. (laughs) Second example is about encouraging people to join the organ donor registry and they did this using the principle of reciprocity. Potential donors were asked a simple question, if you needed an organ transplant, would you have one? If so, please help others by registering as a donor. It's estimated that they added an additional 100,000 organ donors each year by using this simple but effective technique. And the regulators noticed too. Now we get back to the regulation. The very first occasional paper that was published by the Financial Conduct Authority in 2013 made it clear that behavioral economics would be a material consideration for the FCA and they explained how they would be using it. The paper helped set the tone for the new regulator from the beginning. This was not item number 16 on the agenda. This was the first thing they put out. The influence of the nudge unit in their thinking was clear. The annuity thematic review. In 2014, the FCA reviewed the selling practices of firms offering annuities to retiring customers. This followed on from a previous report where they concluded that some customers missed out on benefits available from shopping around and switching. They showed that Despite the establishment of the open market option, which guaranteed every customer the right to take their retirement savings to any annuity provider, things weren't just working as effectively as they had hoped. The FCA concluded that one of the reasons for this was because of certain behavioral biases that make it difficult for consumers to make the right choices, and that these may result in them not shopping around effectively. The specific behavioral biases that they identified in pension savers was a tendency to underestimate longevity, inflation, and investment risk. They also found that the choices savers made highly sensitive to how options are presented to them, what is known as framing effects. In particular, they were quite concerned by how non-underwritten annuity providers who were aware of a client's medical condition at the point of retirement were framing retirement options in a way that not only identified but exploited customer biases. The choice of the wording in their report is, I think, quite important. To someone who is familiar with the field of behavioral science, it's like a member of a secret society walking up to you and offering you the secret handshake. Behavioral science is alive and well in the UK conduct regulator. I think we should expect the same here. Now, some insurance executives, actuaries among them, will argue that people are free to make a choice and because they have the ability to choose, regulators should stay out of it. Well, it's clear to me from the previous report content that uh, regulators are no longer willing to accept that argument. Lisa here is, on the face of things, being given a choice but is it really a fair choice? Has the choice architect here done a good job? Is he really acting in her best interests by presenting the information in that particular way? If our goal is to do what is best for our customers, we should be helping them make the best choices. As customer-oriented professionals, we should be asking the question, Is the way we are presenting our do you consume alcohol question going to influence the outcome and in what direction is that going to, is what direction is that influence going to occur? In South Africa, we have until now had limited choices for retiring customers. Conventional annuities with a plethora of escalation options and living annuities the arrival of a credible enhanced annuity provider into the South African market is going to change that. Until now, someone who was severely ill didn't really have much in the way of real choices. Now there is going to be one more choice. How will our advisors present this option? And if an advisor is tied to a firm that doesn't have an enhanced annuity offering, will he tell the customer about it? And if he does, will it make sense? The second second occasional paper that was reported, uh, that was uh, published by the FCA, reported on an experiment around redress letters. Now, during big industry-wide redress exercises, there is typically a lot of publicity. Customers know that there is a problem because the media tells them and at some point someone gets on TV, a lawyer typically, and tells them that they have the right to claim and we're happy to help. When it comes to smaller exercises, though, we're reliant on firms writing to customers. And what we know is that many customers do not respond, even when they have been missold, responding, reacting would be in their best interests. One reason for this is that relevant information may be obscured, more complex than necessary, or that consumers just suffer from inertia. What we do know for certain is that firms alone do not have the incentive to try and overcome or compensate for these problems. In the second second occasional paper, the FCA reported on how they had worked with a firm who was voluntarily writing to almost 200,000 customers about a failing in the sales process. Using proper randomized control samples, the FCA tested seven potential improvements to the letters, all simple tweaks, and tracked the response rates. They tried every one of the 128 combinations and found some interesting results. The control group, because um, okay, so you've, you've lost the bottom of that slide there, the control group had a basic response rate of 1.5 percent. So on the axis over there, I'm afraid that technology has let us down here, um, showing for the, yeah, for the control group 1.5 percent, and then going across on the ex- axis, looking at the different treatments or the experiments or the tweaks that they tried. Uh, the report was quite, was uh, interestingly quite, quite uh, open about how two of the factors weren't particularly helpful. One of the factors was putting the regulator's logo in you know, a nice big prominent place. That had no effect. The second one was making sure that the letter wasn't signed by someone from customer services but was actually signed by the CEO. That decreased the response rate. <laughs> Not sure how the CEOs took that. So The results and conclusions are relevant and applicable to... Future communications between firms and their customers. So, you can't see the text, so I'm going to be a little bit more verbose here. So the envelope, which the letter is sent, needs to be opened and should be appropriately distinctive. Key messages must be salient and immediate as possible. Firms need to reduce any excess verbiage. Firms need to reassure consumers that claiming redress will be as easy as possible, and lastly, Firms should follow up and remind people to respond. The group that had these five tweaks had a 12% response rate. And I remember that's comparing against a 1.5% response rate at the start. And this is phenomenal impact for very little additional cost. I also find it quite telling that the impact is considered a success even though the result isn't 100%. There seems to be a a mindset among some of us that if a solution isn't a silver bullet, we shouldn't bother at all. I would suggest that this way of thinking needs to be changed. Incremental progress, especially at low cost, is better than no progress at all. What we need to do is realize that our our consumers are less like little Lisa Simpson, a cool, calm voice of rationality, and a lot more like this guy. Human beings are lazy, greedy, not that intelligent, definitely not experts in every field, and we're willing to go to extraordinary lengths to avoid having to think about things which we think are hard. As a direct result, we struggle to make choices and will take the path of least resistance. One of the easiest such such paths is a default option, which allows the consumer to do nothing but end up with a result. If we offer a default, we need to make sure that what we put as that default is what a well-educated, thoughtful client would have chosen for himself if he'd taken the time, something that is good for the client as he would measure it. And defaults work. There have been numerous studies looking at this, but my favorite one is something very simple to understand. Germany and Austria are two neighboring countries with strong cultural similarities. They both drink beer, eat sausage, and have an organ donor registry, which you can join when you renew your driver's license. The Austrian form has the default option of yes and allows citizens to opt out, while the German form has the default option of no, and you can tick the box to opt in. In both cases, it really is a simple tick box to alter the form. Any thoughts on how, how, you know, how different the results are going to be? what was that? 90 percent, 30, okay, so, got some, uh, something interesting for you. In Austria, the take-up rate is 99 percent, in Germany, it's 12 percent. Defaults are powerful. Now, one of the things that Homer might struggle with is a concept called mapping. Homer, can, you know, if he has to choose between ice creams, he can probably do that quite easily. He knows how the flavors taste, so he can easily map each option onto the ultimate happiness he is going to experience. That's a nice, easy mapping. The chocolate-vanilla trade-off is one that we all understand. But what about customers when they come to retire? Considering a trade-off between living annuities and guaranteed annuities is much harder than choosing between ice cream flavors. Can customers foresee the results of their choices? Unless we make it very real for them, people can't visualize themselves as being poor as a result of inflation. They don't have a good understanding of probabilities, of investment returns, and life expectancies. Yeah, it, they just don't get it. And it's unreasonable of us to expect them to. Oh, and it also doesn't help if the advisor explaining the thing to them is incentivized in a certain direction or another, or can only offer one product type. We need to apply some vigilance to our distribution channels. Are we selling a lot of chocolate because our customers want chocolate, or because our advisors want to sell chocolate? We need to try and help our customers solve the problem of their retirement option. Now, I know of at least one firm in South Africa that is trying to make life easier. What they do is different retirement options are given a red, amber, or green rating. This is something that customers can understand. And in keeping with the principle of soft paternalism, a customer can still take a red option, but they're going to do so against the house advice. The final piece of FCA output I'd like to talk about is, relates to general insurance add-ons. These are insurance products that are sold alongside a primary product, so the primary product may be financial services like a home loan or maybe non-financial product like uh, buying a motor vehicle. In those instances, the insurance add-on would be building cover or vehicle insurance. Behavioral fi- science featured prominently in the study and led to a set of findings about opting in and opting out which we talked a little bit later, and the regulators take an action that will ban opt-out selling techniques for certain products from 2016. A further finding, and this is the one which I find most interesting and quite scary, is um, identifying that customers struggle to understand the value of insurance. And the regulator is currently consulting on whether or not claims ratios should be published for these add-on products as part of the sales process. I'd like you to take a moment and just consider how you would feel if for all of your products, credit life providers especially, how you would feel if your claim ratios were publicly available. And further think, how would your board feel when your company is number three on the Sunday Times Insurance Poor Value Blacklist? I believe that making this sort of information available will be a very powerful tool and we'll initiate a feedback loop, feedback mechanism that could have material financial consequences for some companies. So where do we go from here? Well, firstly, we need to acknowledge the uncertainty. Where will the regulators begin? We don't know. We're just gonna have to wait and see. Will all of the techniques that I've talked about and all the techniques in the UK and Europe apply here? No, not all of them will. Most of them, yes. Secondly, we need to recruit people who have the appropriate skills to help us. These are people who can understand that our customers are people. These are the people that we need to be choice architects. We need to actively interrogate our existing sales practices and put in controls for future sales practices. How are we giving advice? Are we making it easier for our customer to understand value? Easy for them to make a good choice? We know that our customers have intrinsic flaws. Are we ignoring these, acknowledging these, or exploiting them? Do we have sales channels or practitioners that suggest product biases that are their own and not their customers? More importantly, do we have the right metrics in place to support the reporting and oversight? Lastly, we need to prepare for the response which will follow an all too familiar pattern. It begins with denial. This won't apply in South Africa. We're different and none of this will work here. Don't have to worry about any, la 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 la. Then comes anger, when the product actuary reminds you about the sales and profit targets that he's committed to for the next three-year business plan. Then bargaining, that's when we uh, try to compromise, and uh, we say, look, we'll do, do this for future customers from 2017 only, and we won't look at anything in the back book. Is that okay? Then depression, typically as the executives start to realize that their bonuses aren't going to be quite what they hoped for. And finally acceptance, as we realize that doing right by our customers is the right thing to do. As actuaries, we should be looking to get ahead of these issues. Doing so will restore the faith in our profession and the public's faith in the insurance industry, ultimately leading to sustainable, fair profits, and an industry that is better for everyone. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Peter. We've got about 10, 15 minutes uh, for questions, and I found it quite interesting that both Peters ended up uh, with the client, Um, and look forward to what questions would come up, any questions that you do have. Maybe the last few slides were a little bit too close to the bone in terms of what you presented there, Peter. Any comments, any questions? Question in the middle there, thank you. Uh, Hi.
1: Uh, My question probably applies to both Peters, um, which is, do you think that the regulator should enforce uh, default options in retirement that are tracker funds rather than active funds? Do you think this would improve retirement outcomes? Um, I'll answer first, seeing as he's looking at me. Um, uh, I mean, I think any time you do anything with regards to defaults, um, you need to be careful that it actually is going to enhance the customer's value. Um, and uh, I think Peter said it quite well. And the research that they've done in the UK and all of these things has always been very telling uh, because what we would expect as the right outcome is not necessarily always is the right outcome. So I, I wouldn't want to give an answer to that without saying actually are we convinced that it's the right outcome and actually does it work for everybody before you, give, before you do you know, give it a definitive answer on that.
2: I would want... Right. Um, so, I would want there to be some defaults. I would want those defaults not to be high fee paying funds. Active versus passive. Um, it's not an area I have a, a particular interest in. Um, I know a number of people who have very strong views on it. Um, I, I do think that it is something where a decision does actually need yeah, a decision does need to be made, and it needs to be made based on some science rather than gut impact, rather than gut feel, and it needs to be based not on what is this going to do to the bottom line of certain active managers.
0: Thanks, any other questions yeah, in front? Hi, um, my question goes to Peter Temple on behavioral economics, is the rational option truly rational? And what I mean by that is when we run models and stuff at a population level, we're looking at the average person, who in most cases doesn't actually exist. So if you've got a bunch of people and um, they expected, like the example that you gave with the 10,000 rand um, loss and the 5% chance they had a... Um, so, if, if you have that example, isn't it more rational to actually have a chance of not losing anything or um, yeah, what we would consider to be the irrational option, isn't that actually more rational?
1: I guess there's two answers to that. The first one is in pure economic theory, the rational answer is the one that you would look at from a, a numerical perspective and so therefore we would say actually the economic answer is we were irrational in our answers. Um, so if you're defining it rationality in terms of economics, then, then yes, um, you can't really change that. That's the definition given by economics. But your question I think is, um, is it the, the generally accepted answer, um, is there will be more people that will accept this or take this option, um, and therefore that actually is the, the right thing or whatever you want to call it. Um, that is a different thing. I, I think it's it's not necessary rationality. I think it's um, it's you know the right or the best for everybody, or the best for most people here, um, because not everybody would have chosen that, as you saw. So it's I think the word rationality is the the, the difficulty. Rationality is defined by the economics rather than um, by by what most people select.
2: Can I add something to that? Mm-hmm. Um, so what, one of the things when it, it comes to science, you want to have a model which ultimately is going to be a good predictor of future, result, of future behavior and of future results. And the thing which we know now is that the traditional financial economics, that you know, Keynesian economics, you know, all things pre-financial econo- uh, pre-behavioral economics, it, produ- you know, it just doesn't predict the results all the time. So you know, the question about what is, is and isn't rational, maybe not that important. The question that, you know, I think you know, is more focused on how are people going to react, how are people going to behave, and making sure that we understand that better.
0: Sean, and then Jaina?
2: Um. I'd, I'd like the panel's view on uh, sorry i 'd like the panel 's view on exploiting behavioral economics because um, obviously we 're going to get a lot better at this, but uh, I know of some companies that have the happiest customers but they 're also the most profitable customers ah oh, companies so you know when when does when does exploiting behavioral economics become a bad thing and when is it a good thing um, because we talk about the positive side of it, but you can also um, veer quite strongly into the negative side of it. And sometimes, because of irrationality, people think they're better off, but they're not.
1: I I mean, I think that's an excellent point, and I think that's the the crux of whether or not we're being client-centric. I I think the problem that we've got is, um, if it's something that's actually going to be genuinely in the benefit uh, of the consumer, um, and actually encouraging them to do the right thing. Um, So in the example that I gave, Discovery is encouraging you to exercise more, um, and then rewarding you for that, I, you know, I think that's generally a good thing to exercise more. It's not a bad thing, um, and therefore it's in, the, it's in a good interest of the consumer. But my, my difficulty with behavioral economics comes in, um, and in some of the examples that Peter gave, um, is where people are starting to use behavioral economics to get people to make selections which are not necessarily in their best interests. So I mean, one piece of research that he didn't show, which is from the UK, but it's also done by the regulator, they looked at, uh, in life insurance online sales, um, where you ask a particular question or where you ask people to add an, an extra option on. And um, if you ask the person up front in the questions, most people will decline it. If you ask it after they've basically got their premium, and you say, and would you like to add on oh, this extra option for another five rand or five pounds or whatever per month, they will, most people will just take it, because they look at it and say, oh, that's a small amount extra, and take it. But it's generally very poor value for the consumer at that point in time. I don't think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, that's where the regulator will step in and should step in, um, but we as an industry should not be doing that.
2: Yeah. If I can just give an- another example, um... One of the, the things with the annuity sales practices, and it relates to the hyperbolic discounting that, people, that Peter um, talked about, what some advisors were doing was they were explaining how if you bought an annuity from another company, it was going to take so long to transfer the money across, and, and only after all of that had happened would you get your tax-free cash. So the guys were looking and going, right, in the next six weeks I'm not going to have my one-third of the pension fund or 25% of the pension fund in tax-free cash right now, and they were overplaying the value of that as opposed to the regular monthly income that they were going to be getting hopefully for the next 15 years. Yeah, that's an example where you are exploiting people's biases for your own gain and to their detriment. Um, So I um, I like this image that's emerging that um, If companies are going to start using behavioral economics for their own good as opposed to for the good of the consumer, then the regulator needs to step in and start using behavioral economics for the good of the consumer to balance it out. Um, But what occurred to me is, do do companies act irrationally? I mean, I haven't really seen any of this. Rationality is always applied to to humans, to to individuals. But do companies make irrational decisions that are behaviorally influence boards of, I mean, I think they do. I think there's stuff that happened in previous uh, presentations today, like using financial incentives, even though you know they don't work, to motivate your managers or something like that. So I think people, uh, companies still make those decisions. And then to what extent can the regulator actually start behaviorally influencing corporations to, to act in the interest of consumers, if that applies?
1: I mean, I can comment just very briefly. Do companies act rationally or irrationally? I think the answer to that is companies are people, um, and therefore people, companies will act um, because they are people. So um, I think they will be influenced in the same way that we are influenced as individuals, so companies will make decisions on the same basis. Um, so yes, I think you can influence companies through, through behavioral economics
2: as well. Yeah, as, as for the question, As for the question of should should regulators be getting involved with companies in order to protect consumers, absolutely. After that, no, I think that that then starts to – you start having regulators overreaching um, and the responsibility of the board is to make sure that the company is well-managed and well-run and and all the rest of it.
0: I think Rob had a question, but Rob's left the building. One more question at the back, and then th- is there anybody else who has a question? One last question there. All
2: right, thank you. Um, just to Peter Carswell, I was just quite interested in, in the UK uh, with annuitization, we have the same issue in South Africa where people aren't um, arguably annuitizing appropriately, high, uh, high rates of living annuities. Uh, not sufficient protection in terms of inflation, longevity, etc. What techniques um, were used in the UK and were shown to work? And how was that, show, uh, you know, measured to show that this is actually better? Well, uh, effectively, the technique that was worked that, that was used was compulsory um, yeah, Don't give people a choice. But as we've seen more recently, the UK government is now opening up and making sure that when people get to retirement, they now have more choice. Now, the, you know, what we're seeing with National Treasury with the retirement reforms of wanting to make sure that we have default options in place for people when they, you know, when they leave the fund, when they retire, when certain events happen, you know, this is where the pension fund trustees who... Um, you couldn't pay me enough money to be a trustee over the next 10 years, just by the way, um, who they are going to have to put in place good default options which are going to be good for their members. Um, And uh, there are certain behavioral uh, biases that you can use um, in your favor, as it were. If you tell people that what you have right now is 10,000 Rand a month, and now you want to look at other options, then they're going to say, well, I'm going to be losing that 10,000 rand a month certainty and replacing it with something else. So you, you, know, you can start to, to, to play on that, on that whole thing about losing things and taking things away, and you know, how, you know, what did you say? I think it's twice as much value in losing something as it is in gaining, three times as much in losing as, as it is in gaining something.
0: Rob, do you have a, no. One last question at the back and then we'll close. My question relates more on the separation between the regulatory authorities, so like what you saw in the UK, between the Prudential okay. and the, the Financial Conduct Authority. How do you see conflicts of interest between those two sort of forces playing out where, for example, the Prudential Authority may in- enforce excessive amounts of capital, for example, to be put aside, which could be to the detriment of the customer ultimately? How do you see that playing out?
2: So what we saw in the UK and what we're seeing here in South Africa is a memorandum of understanding between the regulators. So where there is an issue or a potential conflict, they're going to work it out. And a great example of that in the UK was how does the Prudential Authority work with the Financial Conduct Authority when it comes to declaration of bonuses for with-profit funds? The Financial Conduct Authority. I believe policyholder expectations need to be met, and that's first and foremost in their mind. But the Prudential Authority says, well, the fund needs to be solvent, first and foremost, in our mind. And so they they sat down and they said, right, how are we going to deal with this situation? So the the important thing is that we have people who are calm, level-headed, able to make these decisions now rather than in the heat of the moment. Right.
0: Thanks, everyone. I think we've come to the end. Uh, Just a quick disclaimer before we go off to tea. As far as I know, there's no popcorn uh, for tea and there's no ice cream, so you'd have to go elsewhere for that. Uh, To answer Joanna's question, a a company that does come to mind, and I probably shouldn't mention this, but I think they use the Nudge unit in some cases and others they don't, is Eskom. It's amazing how we get tariff increases straight after load shedding. Um, and I don't think anybody responds to those warning uh, lights that come on our TV at time to switch off our pool pump and geyser. So I think they use them effectively and ineffectively at times. But thank you to our uh, speakers, to our two Peters. Uh, I, think, I think the point is watch this space and uh, let's see what happens. But thank you for joining us. The next session is our far
2: past three.